When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania, Ole Miss, John Glenn, Liston Beats Patterson, Pope Paul. I say, let's pray. Bless me, for I have sinned. Oh, you have. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 93 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that races through post-war history and all the reasons why the world today is as it is, all done through the medium of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready, as always, for our brains to be expanded, astonished and quite possibly blown? Yeah, it could be a mess, but, you know, I have a spritzer and I have a mop, so I'm ready for all eventualities. So today, the subject is Pope Paul VI. It's 1963, and Cardinal Giovanni Battista Enrico Antonio Maria Montini is elected as Pope, and he takes the name Pope Paul VI. The sixth. This is two years after John F. Kennedy became the first Catholic president of the United States of America. And also, JFK was a star of a previous episode. Got plenty to get into. Let's talk Pope Talk, Tom. So, Katie, both of us were brought up Catholic. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you had the same experience as me as a child where popes, whichever the present incumbent was, were treated with a strange mix of extreme deference and gentle ridicule. Well, that's because you came from an Irish background, and there's a lot of conflicts going on there. There are. One of my earliest memories, Katie, is when Pope John Paul II became the very first pope ever to visit Britain. This was in the summer of 1982. And he went around the country in a contraption called the Pope Mobile, mm. which when I was eight years old seemed incredibly glamorous. Looking at it again in recent days, it appears to be a bog standard British Leyland lorry with a large glass box on the back. And that's where the Pope sat. <laughs> was the idea of the glass box just to kind of keep him fresh? I think it was to keep him ultimately very fresh because there had been assassination attempts. Oh, okay. Protect the Pope but still see the Pope scenario. And much like a massive rock band, he played all the big venues. He did Wembley. Right. He did, I think he did Coventry, big stadium in Coventry, he did Cardiff. There was a lot of kissing of tarmac, massive amounts of excitement that he'd come to Britain. Right, right. Well, I didn't experience that. Sadly, it sounds like I, I missed quite the tour. But I do recall in the late 60s with the Pope that we're going to be discussing today, Pope Paul VI, there was much consternation amongst my extremely religious 
Eastern European dad that the mass was no longer said in Latin after Vatican II, which was the the new slant on things that Pope Paul VI brought into play. And uh, joining us today to put us in the picture with Pope Paul VI is James Felak. He is the professor of history at the University of Washington, and he currently holds the Newman Center term professorship in Catholic Christianity. Welcome, James. Well, thank you for having me. Now, James, before we get started on this particular pope, what does a pope actually do? What's his job? It all depends on upon the pope. I mean, there, there are certain things that every pope's responsible for. So his job is to write so-called encyclicals, which are letters for the, really for the entire church. Sometimes they're addressed to the entire world. And they're usually on some particular, you know, topic like, you know, social justice or the Eucharist or, and then also the traveling, making links with the global church, canonizing saints. So when, when someone is officially proclaimed a saint, also naming cardinals who are the upper echelon of church leadership. And since the, the Catholic church is so global, popes in the last maybe century or so have tried to name cardinals from non-Western countries and starting with Paul VI traveling to other parts of the world. Right, right. The pope is officially in charge of the Catholic Church. And he gets to wear like some great outfits, some cool threads and some fantastic jewelry. And at this point as well, James, we're very much talking Italian popes because in this century we have had a Polish pope, we've had a German pope and an Argentinian pope. But Pope Paul VI was absolutely part of that, what, 500 year lineage of purely Italian popes. The last non-Italian was from the time of Martin Luther. I think he was Dutch. And then it was just the constant Italians uh, through Paul VI. And then there was that John Paul I who was Pope for just a month, and he was the last Italian. I think this is sort of perhaps a silly question, but one I'm deeply interested in. How do these popes pick their papal names? It's usually some saint or previous pope that they have a close attachment to. For example, Benedict the Sixteenth named himself after Benedict the Fifteenth. Well, for two, you know, there's Bene- <laughs> there's Benedict the Fifteenth who was the Pope during World War One. Then he's named after Saint Benedict, who was the promoter of monasticism back in the you know the, the sixth century. So, for example, when, when you take the name John or or Paul, you're connecting yourself to an apostle, as opposed to a beetle. Right, exactly. Saint Paul is evangelist to the world. You know, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He he took Christianity beyond its Jewish roots into the the broader Roman world. So Paul VI, now in in modern times with modern mass communications and modern means of travel, he wants to be like St. Paul, like like taking the message out to the world. So he, he's choosing that name, Paul. So you're, you're sort of signaling intent, a bit of a manifesto, and you're giving a sense of the vibe of what you want to do in the job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's, you know, there's certain names you want. I mean, nobody's going to be Pope Jesus, for example, <laughs> or, or Pope Peter II. You're not going to see that. But, but otherwise, um, there have been at least one Pope named Pope Beautiful. What? Pope Formosa. Yeah, yeah. Is there any limit to the number you could have? So we've had Benedict XVI, which feels, I don't know, possibly excessive. Could you just Mm -hmm. keep going if you so wanted to reference previous Benedicts? There's no upper limit on Pope names. And this particular Pope, Pope Paul VI, he says, when I've looked at his early life and his path Mm -hmm. to the papal throne, James, it looks like if ever a man was set out in life to be a Pope, it's this one. Oh, yeah, no, there there have been a number of of, uh, people that kind of got on that, career track for top church leadership. Paul VI went into diplomatic training. So he, he becomes a priest and and right off the bat, he goes to the school for Vatican diplomats. And then he spends about 
at least 20 years in the Secretariat of State. It does sound like he sees the opportunity to see the world, or at least he had a, a he had a sense that in this line of work, it wasn't just about kneeling and praying and thinking beautiful mm-hmm. thoughts, but also affecting people and perhaps bringing people together who maybe felt disenfranchised from the church. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. You know, what are the needs of the time? There are times when there'll be a pope, you need this really good with diplomacy. I think I think Benedict XV was elected right at the start of World War I because he was a skilled diplomat. And they thought, you know, the church needs somebody that can maneuver through all this because Catholics were fighting each other on both sides of, of the war. Sometimes they'll uh, want some, you know, spiritually upstanding character, even if he doesn't have a lot of administrative experience. Sometimes they'll want a more intellectual pope. But Paul VI, you know, he's, he's elected at the time. John XXIII has just launched the Second Vatican council. It's lasted uh, for one year already. John dies after the first year. So, Paul steps in and, you know, they're going to want a pope who's going to continue this council and see it through. And, you know, Paul VI, actually, he was more liberal than a lot of the more influential people in the church. You know, his family were strongly anti-fascist. So, when, whenever the Catholic Church tried to make some accommodation with Mussolini, that didn't sit well with Montini. And then he was, you know, politically pretty leftish. He was very um, much into close relations with socialists and even later with, with communists, both in Italy and globally. He was actually kind of promoted up and out in the 50s when they made him Archbishop of Milan. So that wasn't a step toward Pope. That was actually like, get him out of the way. He didn't get the cardinal hat. I don't don't think that had been done in in many hundreds of years where you get that job without being made a cardinal. Oh, wow. So so the fact that he's made the archbishop without being made a cardinal, that is sort of damning with faint praise in a way because they're just trying to like keep him sweet, but also defang him. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was, a, you know, Milan was a kind of a leftist city with a lot of workers and industry and so on. So he, he, he fit in there because he had sympathies in that direction. But yeah, he, he doesn't get the red hat, as they say, until John XXIII becomes Pope. And then Montini becomes Cardinal. And then he's uh, Papa Bile. You know, he's, he's popable. So if there were to be some seismic shift in my life outlook and I would mm-hmm. find myself Papa Bile, um, mm-hmm. how would I then plot my way to the very top? Is it a little bit like being a politician where you have to assiduously court support from various wings of your sort of electors? You know, it's, it's an opaque process, so nobody really, really knows exactly what's up. But some people get the job that don't really want it. I mean, they're, they're kind of pushed into it because other cardinals want them. And then there's various factions. There'll be kind of a more liberal faction, a more traditional faction, a more maybe conservative but not so traditional faction. Uh, there'll be different constituencies globally, like, you know, Western Europe, Eastern Europe. Uh, they'll meet together. They'll lobby. They'll, they'll push various candidates. And, and there used to be a rule that you had to have two-thirds majority to, to ever get the job. And then Pope John Paul II, I think it was probably one of his worst reforms, maybe. He changed the rule so that if, if they're hung up for a very long time, unable to get two-thirds of the vote, then it reverts to a simple majority. The people doing the voting, just to be certain this, they're all men. Yes, yeah, it's the College of Cardinals. And I think now there's a, a age limit of 75, but it used to be until you died, you, you could come and vote. And then when the decision is made and we see the famous white smoke rising mm. uh-huh. above the Vatican, is the world surprised that the new pope is Pope Paul VI or is he the bookmaker's favourite? Uh, it wasn't a big shock like when John Paul II got elected, for example. His kind of liberalism, which used to set him apart, 
now the church is kind of swinging in that direction so he doesn't look as as strange. I'm interested in the fact that there's a synchronicity between the fact that you have this liberal pope who's just been elected and the fact that John F. Kennedy is the president of the United States who signifies this new, fresh, optimistic outlook on life and kind of more of a, maybe a rock and roll approach, a more youthful approach. And I'm wondering, did... Pope Paul VI and JFK have any interaction? Because, of course, John F. Kennedy was the first Catholic president of the USA. He was pretty shy about, you know, one thing helped him get elected was playing down his Catholicism. Yes. If he needed to talk to the Pope or whatever, that would be done, you know, through quiet channels. You'd hear more positive things about the Popes from other political parties and politicians and world leaders. Right. It wasn't so loaded for the other leaders who weren't Catholic. And in fact, this raises a point that I wanted to discuss with you. Can you elaborate on this anti-Catholic sentiment in America? And I'm wondering how far it goes back. I mean, I know, obviously, America was founded on Protestant principles from the nonconformists who came over from England. But I'm just wondering if you can help us understand the nature of why there was hostility against Catholics, because I think that's sort of hard to understand now, especially when you look at the American Supreme Court, where six of the nine justices are, in fact, Catholic. You know, it was a country founded by Protestants. Catholics, they came in waves of immigration, usually of lower class people, starting with Irish, but then you got all the, you know, people like our ancestors from Eastern Europe. So, so they were seen as kind of a foreign element, this sense that the church itself's authoritarian. You know, we're, we're a country that's a republic. We overthrew the king. Its minions are, are people that aren't really going to accept uh, democratic values. Practically everybody assimilated. So within a couple of generations, that start, that's how Kennedy could get elected in part two, was that those feelings start to ease up among a lot of Americans. So when L. Smith ran for president back in the 20s, he, he loses. And there's, you know, if he's elected, the Pope will be running the United States and on and on and all that. What happens and really help, helps with Catholics, partly... This criticism of Catholics of being not democratic, that actually leads to, in Vatican II, the church really starts to embrace liberal modern democracy and really distance itself from any sort of like embrasure of of monarchy and so on. So it actually, responding to them, this criticism helps push the church in that direction. But a big thing, too, is in the United States, Catholics supported the government in World War II. They were patriotic. They fought in both world wars. That always helps uh, any sort of immigrant group to improve their reputation among the people that are already there in the country. And then also, once the Cold War comes, United States and the Catholic Church have the common enemy in uh, Soviet Union, in communism. Catholics very much supported, you know, United States challenging the Soviet Union in the 50s. And what helps them in things like the Supreme Court is educated intellectual Catholics are taught to engage in kind of secular discourse. Like they don't have to quote, they don't quote Bible verses all the time to make a point. They try to do it in in a philosophical rather than theological manner. And and the more hardcore Protestants have trouble doing that. I'm listening to this, Casey. I'm wondering what it must be like to actually be Pope. There's a great (laughs) quote from Paul VI. Apparently he wrote this in his journal. He said... The position is unique. It brings great solitude. I was solitary before, but now my solitude becomes complete and awesome. 
Wow, he's uh, he's digging himself in this cavernous uh, wilderness of uh, just being the only pope in town. Yeah, James, how does he spend his days? Almost a sort of day in the life of a pope. How does a pope begin his day? What does he have for breakfast? It can be an enormously taxing job because you have to deal with all the bureaucracy, all the reports coming in from from all the executive branches and basically the cabinet there. And also the Vatican bureaucracy doesn't always work with the Pope. Popes sometimes are left in the dark by their own bureaucracy. Is it an absolutist monarchy? No, they have, they have so much less power than people people think. Just a case I was thinking, there was a, a Catholic newspaper uh, editor in the United States. He was a priest, and he was in one of the religious orders, and he was more conservative than his order, so they kind of, you know, silenced him or bu- bumped him out of an uh, important media job into something else, some, some like, and he appealed to the Vatican and the, the Pope ruled on his behalf, but then it just never got implemented. So he never got his, his job back. And a lot of things like that, because it's, it's just to get the Pope's attention is almost impossible. And then once one gets to the top, even if he makes a decision, it's not like that's necessarily going to be, be enforced. You're always constrained by the budget. There's only so much money you have to enforce things and to implement things. And, and they're always in the red. So that's, that's another uh, problem. So there, there's a long list of just constraints, not enough hours in the day. Not enough energy to deal with all those things, having to rely on bureaucrats. It sounds like uh, running the Catholic Church, it's a business much like any other in a lot of ways. So getting back to Pope Paul VI, I want to get into the fact that he instated something called the dialogues with non-Christians, non-believers, Protestants, communist countries. Were all these seen as quite daring initiatives? So this is interesting. So the outreach to like non-Catholic Christians, so, you know, Eastern Church, the Protestants, that's pretty daring because, you know, people that were already adults by the time of the Pope's pontificate, they remember a time when, you know, it was almost impossible for a Catholic to marry a Protestant. You weren't supposed to go to each other's churches, e- even funerals and weddings and things like that was was kind of iffy. So this was like a, a totally new world in that now he's, you know, embracing Protestants. He's He goes to, to Jerusalem and meets with the Eastern Orthodox Patriarchy. You know, the Patriarch of Constantinople comes to Jerusalem and meets with Pope while he's on a visit. He also meets with the local Anglican bishop in Jerusalem and the Lutheran leadership. And then also this this building an outreach with non-Christian religions. You know, the Jews are always high on the list and then the Muslims, but even with like Hindus. I mean, Paul VI goes to India and, and he's treated like a visiting holy man and he has events that are open to all faiths. And, and he, he becomes a really big hit while he's, he's over there. So it seems that Pope Paul VI definitely was into that supergroup idea of bringing together the world religions and that a rising tide lifts all boats idea. Let's talk about the significance of his approach to the communist world, because he engaged with it. This is in the height of the Cold War in the 60s. He engaged with the communist world without condemning it. Can you discuss that? There were a lot of tensions between Catholic Church and communism, you know, right from the start, really. Under Pius XII, that continued. And then when he dies in 1958, then John XXIII comes in. He's going to take a new approach. So it really starts with him. And then Paul VI just picks that up and takes that further. So on the one hand, there's this fear of nuclear war. And, and so the idea is, you know, we, we really have to step back from these tensions with Soviet Union and with communism. And then the other, besides world peace, there's also the 
Catholic Church was under pretty severe oppression in the communist bloc. So there were bishops and priests in prison camps. And, and the idea coming from the popes is if we can have better relations with the communists, we can get those guys out of jail. We can get at least some minimal functioning of the church. What was growing in some of those countries, like a, a priests that are willing to, to speak out against injustices in those countries, all those guys get cut off. I mean, Pope Paul wants them to just be quiet and not rock the boat while he tries to make deals with the communist leadership. So in in one sense, that's daring, but it kind of gets old really fast because especially as we get into late communism and people over there get under the communist regimes are getting more assertive and you're getting eventually like things like the solidarity movement in Poland, the uh, labor unrest. That approach seems like almost like collaborationist with regimes. It's how church will deal with places like China and so on today. You've got to try to get along with the regime which means actually not really speaking out for Christians in those countries that are unhappy with the regime or, or persecuted. When Paul VI was Pope, for example, virtually every communist country, they, they had an organization for pro-communist priests. In some countries, most of the priests would belong. Pope John Paul II shut that down. He just said, no, this is a, not a legitimate organization. These priests are forced to go into this. They become mouthpieces of propaganda. And he says, I'm going to be the voice of the oppressed Catholics. I'm going to be a voice of the underground church. That, that's 180 degrees opposite of what Paul VI did. So for his time, when there was threats of you know nuclear war and the bishops were sitting in prison camps and so on, it, it made sense to build these relations with these communist countries perhaps in that context, but by the 70s and 80s, when you're starting to get human rights movements and social agitation, then John Paul's approach seemed to be more effective, which was just give open support to Catholics that are standing up to the communists or at least trying to push for some kind of big changes. Let's talk now, James, about maybe two of the great legacies of Pope Paul VI that maybe shaped the Catholicism that Katie and I grew up in. We'll talk about human vitae in a second, but first let's talk about the Second Vatican Council because, Katie, this is the thing that means that when you and I are being taken slash dragged to church as youngsters, <laughs> that we're not going through a full Latin mass no. as our parents had, but instead we can actually understand some of the things that are being said. Yes, or as my dad liked to call it, hippie mass, <laughs> complete with yeah. guitars. It's a huge change, James, isn't it? It's a huge change that goes down well in some parts of the Catholic world and not so well in other parts. Well, also, can I just quickly interject and ask, is it just an overall loosening of the stays, unbuttoning the girdle, letting it all hang out a little bit to make the Catholic Church more accessible and more popular and thereby giving it a more a new lease on life? They, they would put it more, more like reading the signs of the times, that things have changed. It's a different world from earlier generations. Things were implemented Sometimes, according to the letter of the Vatican Council, other times things got a little, people would say, kooky. Just priests uh, coming up with their own kind of masses and and their own sort of prayers and and kind of, a lot would say, kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, so you, you got a lot of that in the church, this contestation over what did the council mean? How should we implement it? Should we implement it a lot? Or are we giving up a precious legacy or are we just clearing out dead wood? And all of those are contested. They still are contested. I don't think the council said you should have mass in the vernacular. I think that was that came in the ensuing years as they tried to implement this whole idea of reaching out to the world, connecting more, and so on. You know, by the late 60s, pretty much everybody was worshiping in their native language. Graham Greene, uh, the British writer, comes up in the Paul VI story a couple of times. I, I believe he actually wrote a letter protesting against the uh, end of Latin mass. 
And then he also, you know, his his uh, novel, The Power and the Glory, which is a great Catholic classic, condemned by the Holy Office, as they call it in Rome, as being inappropriate for Catholics because the, the priest was a drunk and had uh, a child out of wedlock and so on. But it, it didn't really amount to much harassment. Green even said they were quite gentle with this. Once I told them I, I couldn't revise it because the copyright was owned by Penguin or whoever. <laughs> they uh, understood they, bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. But, but what happens is he meets Paul VI and this comes up. And he says, yeah, you know, the church didn't really like my novel. And Paul VI told him, pay no attention to what the Catholics who were offended by it would say. James, it sounds like a good blurb for the back of Green's book. Oh, sure, sure. And, and, that, and that kind of gives you a sense of that whole spirit of Paul VI. Like this, you know, he, he wants to move beyond all these old worries and concerns and embrace these new new things. And, and that's that whole spirit of John the Twenty Third of, uh, you know, opening the windows and letting the fresh air blow in and so, so on. The so the fresh air was certainly blowing in. And yet people were surprised when Pope Paul VI issued his 1968 letter Humanae Vitae. And it was sent from the Vatican to the churches and his stance was anti-birth control. And people were surprised by that. There, there was a, a lot of expectation that that they would ease up the, the condemnation of artificial contraception. When, when the pill was invented, a number of Catholics thought that this would be like a morally licit form of birth control because there's no barriers, there's no toxins involved. It's, it, it would seem like, like an a, a appropriate form of birth control. So Vatican II doesn't deal with the issue. Certain issues were kind of kept from Vatican II, like we're going to bracket this out and deal with it through some commission. And so that they do. The commission was kind of mixed lay people and priests. I think there are women on the commission as well. And it ends up not overwhelming vote, but pretty clearly votes for easing up the, the teaching. But the Pope ultimately, when he makes the decision, sticks with the traditional teaching. And it was an interesting departure because here's a guy that's pretty liberal on almost everything. Right. The, the three things he held the line on, contraception, uh, celibacy for priests. There was this hope that he would let priests get married, and that, that doesn't happen. And then the third one, collegiality. He, he never really compromises papal authority and, and kind of turns the church into more of an aristocracy of bishops or cardinals or whatever. So with, with the contraception issue, he, he pretty much affirms the traditional teaching. So the old Catholic teaching of why do we have marriage, procreation, and the other one was so you can avoid sexual sin because you would have a licit way to have sex. By the time of Paul VI, they changed that to it's for procreation and for the unity so of the spouse. They're acknowledging that there is some advantage to yeah, cuddling. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, it, it's kind of thought of in a different way, but the actual, just the condemnation of all artificial contraception in all cases sticks. So I'm, I'm interested in uh, this little tidbit that I read. This is what Pope Paul VI has to say about the pill. He says it opened up a wide and easy road towards conjugal Infidelity and general lowering of morality. Man, growing used to contraceptive practices, may lose respect for the woman and come to the point of considering her as a mere instrument of selfish enjoyment. I mean, James, no acknowledgement that perhaps women would like to partake in some delicious, selfish enjoyment? Sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, sure. it's not a one-way street there, Mr. Pope. People point this out today sometimes if they defend the, the teaching is... It's going to be the end of divorce, basically. It's, it's going to be, there'll be no unwanted, there'll be no abortions even, because just everybody will be on birth control and nobody will be having kids. And the Pope's saying it's kind of the opposite. You're going to get explosion of divorce. You're going to get out of wed. And, and, and we did get that. 
and you know you know what what is cause and effect is is really hard to disentangle but it didn't it didn't deliver on the promises even for you know non-believers who were totally accepting and all, all kinds of birth control you ended up with all kinds of social uh, social problems that that got more uh, intense sometimes in the 60s and 70s a lot of people left the priesthood in the in the 60s either just defiantly or asked to be released from their vows so they could marry. So, you know, they stay Catholic, but they are no longer a priest. Uh, seminary enrollments went way down. Far fewer people became monks or nuns or joined religious orders. So that was the real crisis was how this affected so many religious professionals. So if you're a conservative or traditional Catholic, you'll say it's because the church started to question its own teachings. It started to depart from the traditions. It, it trashed its heritage. It... And if you're a more liberal Catholic, you'll say that it didn't change fast enough. It didn't change far enough. It didn't, you know, have women priests or, or, you know, there was just a rebellion against authority virtually everywhere in the 60s. Paul VI, I think, probably did the best out of a bad situation. Had he taken a liberal line on everything, the church would have there to been a schism. There's enough conservative and traditional Catholics around to say this, this isn't a pope anymore. This is this is uh, abandoning everything. So he he holds the line on you know celibacy, contraception, papal authority, things like that. But it's really leftist on everything else. He's he's leftist politically, economic policy. He's his whole approach to non-Catholics, non-Christians, atheists, all is is very leftish, liberal. So what he does is it, he keeps these traditional teachings so the conservatives don't split off. And, and he's liberal enough that liberals won't become uh, totally alienated. I think, in a sense, he kind of kept the church together through a, a really stressful time. So it sounds like being a pope, especially in his time, is an absolute political minefield. He was there trying to square the unfulfillable demands of the church with real life and the natural tendencies of human beings. Now, what about his own natural tendencies, Tom? I'm wondering about the story that you and I were talking about. In 1976, Pope Paul VI became the first pontiff in the modern era to deny the accusation of homosexuality. What Have you heard about this as well? Yeah, I was interested in this because he's a man who, as you say, James, in public has been quite vehement in terms of what he thinks other people should do and, and he doubles down in 1975 makes it quite clear that premarital sex is wrong that extramarital sex is wrong that homosexuality is wrong that masturbation is wrong so Katie if you are for example a married gay man who has an affair with another man which involves masturbation you're taking a lot of boxes there right um, you're going to hell six ways to Sunday six ways so these allegations are interesting because they strike both at the heart of who he is supposed to be, but also what he's telling the world to do. First thing to um, always keep in mind is Catholic Church has sacrament of confession. So no matter what you do, you can go to confession. And there's also this this sense that some of these sins you'll wrestle with your whole life, you'll, you'll never win, but you can always keep trying, and you always keep going to confession. As far as this scandal, I know the Pope was accused of being homosexual, and he, he vehemently denied it. I think there might have even been a, a libel case over this or, or the Italian authorities, I think, got involved because you're not allowed to 
libel a pope or whatever. What he was really doing, I, I don't know that much about it. Protestants have this notion, it goes back to even some medieval ideas of Catholics that somehow the popes end up, they're like sainted, that through the grace of St. Peter and because they're vicars of Christ and so on, popes can be horrible sinners. Dante has them in hell, um, and that was considered legitimate for a Catholic. To, you can believe a pope goes to hell. It always shocks like Protestant students to hear that. Even I think a pope would say everybody's a hypocrite in a sense. I mean, we, we all uh, profess to live a certain way and, and violate that in other aspects of our life. That's true. Humans are very, very complicated. So, James, why do you think Billy Joel put Paul VI in the song? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. So, oh, I, I went out a whole list of things that he crisscrosses with here, like with Kennedy and the Ho Chi Minh, because he was a, a big opponent of Vietnam War and was even a mediator at times between the United States and Vietnam birth control, and then the British Beatlemania. So Billy Joel's connection with Paul VI almost certainly was because Paul VI came to uh, visit New York City. Ah. In 1965, he went to the United Nations, gave this big uh, speech about you know fighting world poverty, helping the developing world, the responsibility of the rich nations, world peace, got a lot of attention. And then he did mass in Yankee Stadium. And Billy would love that because he loves his baseball. He loves baseball. And he, he drew about the lowest estimate is 80,000 people, probably more like 90,000. Wow. So when the Beatles came uh, in August of 65, they went to Shea Stadium, that's the other stadium, and they drew 55,000 people. So Pope's drawing almost double what the Beatles drew in 65. Wow. He's one of the least interesting of Pope's to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pius XII, you got the World War II and all of that. Then you got John XXIII and the big changes and John Paul II and fall of communism and Benedict was probably the top intellectual of any of these popes. And then uh, Francis is interesting given the, the moments we're in. And Paul VI always kind of like, you know, and he was really shy. You know, he, he after Human Evita, he did not write another encyclical. Do you think he had the stuffing beaten out of him? He's like, fine, yeah. I'm taking my yeah, ball like, and going home. <laughs> that's it. Once bitten, twice shy. Yeah. So he's, not, he's not the easiest pope to make into an interesting story unless you really kind of understand what's going on at the time and all these pressures and how he tries to tries to navigate. A more interesting character than one might assume at first once we dig into him. James, that is superb. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and you have filled Katie and my brains with fresh knowledge, which is all that we ask of our guests. Well, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Katie, should we play papal tennis? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to begin. Giovanni. Battista. Enrico. Antonio. Maria. Montini. <laughs> it's a good rally, isn't it? It is. I did get a little confused every time I had to confront those Roman numerals after Pope Paul's name. I kept reading it in my head as Pope Paul Va. <laughs> you know why you're not good at Roman numerals, Katie? Because they changed the mass from Latin to English. It's so confusing keeping up with the Catholics. I tell you what, poor Pope Paul Vi, he wasn't the most punchy pope, but he was reigning in a dynamic time. But he wasn't like the smartest pope no. or the cutest pope. Most charismatic. He didn't have like total command over many languages, but I think... For a guy who was a little bit of a pencil pusher, he liked doing his admin, he made the most out of his uh, his skills. Can you combine all the P's that you've used in that thought? So Pope Paul, the pencil pusher. <laughs> he was the pencil pushing Pope. Casey, I have a question for you. What? After that. 
if you were able to become Pope, which you can't because the Catholic Church has a different view of the importance of women than it does the importance of men. But if you could, what would your papal name be? Well, you know, you want to combine something that is um, kind of summing up your vibe yeah. as well as paying tribute to somebody you admired in the past. So, I don't know. I think I'd want an all-inclusive kind of petting zoo vibe. Mm. So maybe I'd name myself after a cat I had growing up. Yeah, which would be? So that would be Pope Suki. <laughs> um, and then somebody I admire, perhaps a teacher I had when I was 12 years old, Foldenauer, Mr. Foldenauer. So I'd be Pope Suki Foldenauer. Would you have to specify at that point that you're the first or would you have to wait for someone else to be a second Pope Suki before yeah. you became the first? Oh, oh yeah. I don't, I don't think I'd need the one, the Roman numeral one after the name because I think it's just evident. Pope Suki Foldenauer. How about you? What would your papal name be? Well, bearing in mind that I grew up with Pope John Paul II, I would be the very first Pope John Paul George Ringo. <laughs> I was thinking that you were going to say Ringo George. Maybe I should because John and Paul yeah, they've have already... already been taken care of. Yeah. Would I go Ringo first or George first? George, Ringo, Ringo, George. I think Pope Ringo George. Pope... Kiss my papal Ringo. Kiss my papal Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> so if you'd like another podcast to listen to, I recommend you go back to listen to our JFK episode. We kind of referenced it in this episode. And if you haven't already heard it, it is pretty gosh darn good. Our guest, Fred Logaval, gave us all the facts and figures and the emotions of the very first Catholic, I was going to say Catholic priest, Catholic president of the USA I'll give you more information about what was going on at the time. And if you have any guest ideas or just something you would like to say to Katie or me, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. And next week, Tom, we're going to be getting into the story of the man who was Malcolm X. Not Malcolm the 10th. We need to change our purple heads here. <laughs> yes, Malcolm X it is. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? 
clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.